I'm Michael Schulder. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. What's your superpower? What makes you stand out? And now let's figure out what your hero's journey is. Before you try to answer that question, you may want to pause, go back four episodes to the one entitled Calling All Leaders, and listen to one of the greatest speeches you'll ever hear, Admiral William McRaven's commencement address to the University of Texas 2014 graduating class. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. More than 7 million people have viewed McRaven's Make Your Bed speech online. It was so compelling, I wanted to figure out how each of us can learn from it to become better communicators ourselves. We've been taught the wrong way to communicate, but the basic skills and tricks and techniques for effective and memorable speaking, which is basically effective and memorable storytelling, these have been known for thousands of years. My guest, Joe Rome, is the author of a great new book entitled How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. The tricks that I'm telling you, whether they're metaphor or repetition, are the great memory tricks of the great bards. Because literally, the storytellers, the communicators, the news people of yore were the bards. Joe Rome joins me now to dissect Admiral McRaven's speech in a way that can empower us all. Why is the hero's journey the most popular story? The one we want to hear again and again. The reason is... Life doesn't come with an instruction manual. Nobody knows what they're doing. We are making it up as we go along. For reasons that will soon become clear, I'm calling this episode From Zero to Hero. Joe Rome, who knew that a PhD in physics from MIT would ultimately be somebody who could guide us on the most effective use of language? Did you suspect that when you were studying for your PhD in physics? I didn't actually. I was fortunate in that I was raised by writers, and my father was a newspaper editor for 30 years. And the PhD in physics from MIT was great in the sense that you learn a way of thinking and analyzing. But in terms of communications, it just meant that I had literally, between my bachelor's degree and my PhD, nine years of learning the wrong way to communicate that I then had to unlearn and learn the way regular people talk. The reason you are on Wavemaker Conversations now is because of your new book, How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. And then the subtitle is Top Persuasion Secrets from Social Media Superstars, Jesus, Shakespeare, Oprah, and even Donald Trump. So why don't we take the principles that you have distilled through, what is it, more than 2,500 years, would we say? Indeed, yes. Let's take those principles and now go over Admiral McRaven's really incredible communication skills so that we may be able to absorb them and maybe incorporate them into the messages that we want to send out. Absolutely. Many people out there are obviously uncomfortable speaking in public. And the message of the book, How to Go Viral, is that anyone can do this. The beauty of a great speech is, can I figure out the way to deliver the same overarching message in a bunch of different ways? That is the art of a truly great speaker. And that's what you're going to hear. So the university's slogan is, what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. The university slogan is, 
And here he's tying the university that he's speaking to, to his main theme. What starts here changes the world. And then he repeats it. I have to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. He is going to repeat in a 20-minute speech the word change in one of its forms, change or changing, 27 times, more than once a minute. And he's going to repeat the word world 27 times. Now, he has embedded this in an entire story of what SEAL training is like. Now, obviously, most of us know that SEALs are amazing people, but we don't know how they get that way. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So it is an inherently interesting story. He's then going to go through 10 examples from his SEAL training of specific lessons that he has learned about how to change the world, and then he will sum it up again at the end. What struck me uh, when we just briefly talked before we started our conversation is you really cited the very first sentences, which my first instinct told me were disposable in this speech, but you said, no, they are not. They're essential. Tell me about that. As is often the case, the stuff at the beginning that doesn't seem important in a good speaker, it's all intentional. First of all, your job, one, when you are speaking to a diverse group, particularly a group that doesn't know you other than, let's say, by reputation, is I'm part of your group. That's the first job, and this goes back thousands and thousands of years. Someone is either in our tribe or they're not in our tribe. If they can persuade us they're in our tribe, we're much more likely to listen. It's been almost 37 years to the day that I graduated from UT. I remember a lot of things about that day. I remember I had a throbbing headache from a party the night before. I remember I had a serious girlfriend, who I later married. That's important to remember, by the way. And I remember I was getting commissioned in the Navy that day. So he is explaining, you know, I was a kid graduating like this. I remember the day, and I had the headache. So he may be an impressive admiral and SEAL today, but he used to be just like them. So that's a very important thing in anybody's hero's journey. How did I go from someone like you to this person you might want to listen to and admire. We watch superhero stories, you know, the little kid, and he was bullied in school. Now he's bit by the radioactive spider. Or he's Harry Potter, right? And he's in the closet in his uncle's house. But then he learns that he's got a history and he goes to this magical school. And whether we're talking Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz or Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter, or Spider-Man, you name it. Any Disney movie, I have an 11-year-old daughter, I've seen them all, they're all the same story. This is the story. So what the Admiral has to do, and what any one speaker has to do, 
is explain how I'm part of the group. I was in the same ordinary world that you're in now, but it really isn't so ordinary because it led me to this extraordinary place where I discovered some knowledge and wisdom and powers in me, which I'm now bringing back to tell you in the ordinary world. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The Munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the Munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. That fundamentally is the core story that has gone viral over thousands and thousands and literally tens of thousands of years of human history. And he has laid this out beautifully. And he understands that the single most important thing is to be memorable. What is the connection between brevity and memorability? As you know, in How to Go Around Reach Millions, I have a whole chapter called Short Words Win. And I talk about the fact that while higher education teaches people to use big words, and you learn a lot of big words and complex thoughts. But the fact is, short words are more memorable. And there's many reasons why. First of all, and perhaps most importantly, as Churchill says, the short words tend to be the most ancient in the culture. And therefore, they are the most deeply rooted. And therefore, fancy highfalutin words with four, five, six syllables are not very memorable. But if I say, you know, to be or not to be, blood, sweat, toil, and tears, I have a dream, all of the great speeches in the English language that you remember are short words. I'm actually looking at that chapter now, the chapter that you entitled Short Words Win, Short Words Sell. And I had never known about that particular essay that Churchill had written, where he says, and you quote him, there is no more important element in the technique of rhetoric than the continual employment of the best possible word. That phrase, the best possible word. Wouldn't it be true, though, that sometimes to really convey what you want to convey, the best possible word is not the shortest possible word. Well, I think what you'll find, and this is what George Orwell says in one of his essays, it's not that you could never use a big word. It's never use a big word where a short word will do. And I personally think that because of the way we've been taught in higher education, we've kind of gotten a bit lazy. We're always trying to impress people with the words we know. But if you want to communicate to everybody, you know, and I make the point in the book that Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, won the Nobel Prize in Literature for The Old Man and the Sea. 
which was written at a fourth grade vocabulary. And a guy who uses big words, Faulkner, used to make fun of Hemingway for using short words. And Hemingway literally said to him, you think you need big words to convey big emotions? And his whole point was, Hemingway knew all the big words. He just picked the best word for his stories. And I think that certainly one of the core messages in public speaking is to keep the words simple. And you will see repeatedly how the Admiral does that. And I think the mistake most people make whenever they're writing or speaking is thinking that people are going to walk away with a whole lot of information. So what a great speaker realizes is, if I can leave you with one thing, I am doing better than 95% of the speakers. So let's go right now. Let's go to one of those examples that struck you. One of the best ways to communicate to people is through metaphor and analogy. Something they know, you're going to connect to something they don't know. And almost every one of his lessons is put in a form of a metaphor. And in one case, he's talking about how seals in one of their exercises had to do a major swim at night around sharks. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if the shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. And the lesson that he ends up with is that if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. So he's basically taking a literal shark, he's turning into the metaphor of the sharks that we know exist in the world, and he's connecting it to his main theme, which is you're going to have to deal with the metaphorical sharks of the world if you want to change the world. And half of his lessons are life is tough, and you could choose to whine that life is tough, or you can get up and press forward, and the people who made it through SEAL training, obviously, are the ones who got up and pressed forward. Anyone can succeed during the easy times. The crucible is when tough times come. By the way, I have to stop you right there, because you just used a word that was three syllables instead of one or two, but it was the right word, the crucible. Define crucible for us. And tell me if that was the best word to use in that sense. Well, I think, yes. And crucible, as it turns out, is a metaphor. I mean, a crucible is where chemical tests are done. And the term crucible has been used again and again as tested through fire is kind of one way of thinking about it. So, yes, there's nothing wrong with a longer word, as long as it is one of those visceral words. That's the point. You don't want these abstract five, six-syllable words. You want words that connect to someone through the five senses. I mean, that's ultimately what metaphors do. Metaphors tend to be very visual, like a shark. And many people who are listening to you are visual learners. And this is a key point. When I'm speaking, I have to be able to connect to everybody, not just the people who learn the way I learn. So a really good speaker is going to 
touch all of your senses. And that's one of the beautiful things about his metaphors. Let's go to another passage from Admiral McRaven's commencement address and analyze it for me. One of the main lessons of SEAL training was the teachers were always failing you. There were times when you could never satisfy them. And that's another of his points, the inspection for your uniform. And that was the other metaphor where he talks about the sugar cookie. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, your belt buckle shiny and void of any smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. So this uncomfortable humiliation that you were exposed to, as he says, sometimes you are going to do your best job, and you're still going to fail. But the point is, life is full of these sugar cookies. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. So now break that one down for us. So we'll focus on that, the and, but, therefore. So he is using what is called the and, but, therefore method. And this method, which is the thing that most people come away from the book saying is the most useful thing they do, is a technique that screenwriters use, making their screenplays more memorable and dramatic. It's very simple. You write out a speech, you write out could be a tweet, could be a post, could be your website. Go through, circle all the ands, and wherever possible, try to replace an and with a but or a yet, which is the word of conflict or tension, followed by, at some point, a so or a therefore, which is the word of resolution or solution. Because fundamentally, the three-part structure of a story is the setup, the conflict or confrontation, and then the resolution. So anyway, the setup is I am putting all this effort into this great uniform. The conflict is but, boom, teacher comes in and finds a wrinkle or finds a place I missed polishing or just says that they do, and you have to go through this hell. Therefore, however, I am going to learn not that I quit when I do my best and fail. I learned that sometimes I do my best and fail, and then I just start the next day. Then notice he's made it into a metaphor, and in fact, the seals made a horrible thing into a sweet metaphor. This is another thing I talk about in the book a lot, which is the use of irony. Sugar cookie is an ironic metaphor because there's nothing about what he describes as being tasty and pleasant like a cookie. So he's created an ironic metaphor, but things that are ironic are also more memorable because it's like there's a little twist going on. And by the way, this gets back into a point that you remind us all of in the book. The earliest stories had to be remembered before it was written down, before people could read. They had to communicate it and remember it through the ears. 
Right. And that's why the tricks that I'm telling you, whether they're metaphor or repetition, are the great memory tricks of the great bards. Because literally, the storytellers, the communicators, the news people of yore were the bards. They would come into your town and they would start singing a story. They were all rhythmic stories. I got to fast forward because in your book, you have a whole chapter that begins delving into Hamilton, the Broadway show Hamilton. Absolutely. And I consider Hamilton to be the closest thing today to like Homer showing up in town and telling his two-hour, singing his two-hour-long story of the Iliad or the Odyssey. And I tell people that if you really want to learn these techniques, download the soundtrack to Hamilton and listen to it until you've memorized it. And one of the ways I got that is I had taken my mother to see Hamilton with the original cast, and I bought the score, and the minute my daughter heard it, nine years old at the time, there is nothing else she wanted to hear. We literally played that nonstop for weeks and weeks. Within three weeks, she had memorized 95% of this, which is literally the equivalent of memorizing the entire play of Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, except nobody does that. Why? Because this was brilliant lyrics, brilliant storytelling, metaphors, foreshadowing, repetition, irony, you name it, it's in there, and it is cram-packed in there. But the point is, where did that whole thing come from? The first communicators were the bards. Over thousands of years, they learned all of these tricks to be memorable, because they had to remember the two-hour-long epic poem, and they wanted their listeners to remember. That's why, for instance, they use rhyme. Rhyme makes things a lot easier to remember. So does alliteration. So do metaphors. So does irony. And, of course, so does repetition. And I go through in the book countless stories, including what Lin-Manuel Miranda does in Hamilton as a modern example, that in thousands of years, literally nothing has changed in terms of what is the ancient art of storytelling. And if you ask what could be an alternative title for the book, this is the ancient art and modern science of viral storytelling. I'm trying to combine this ancient wisdom that was gained over thousands of years but isn't taught anymore. And in fact, as we get higher and higher up education, you're told, don't tell stories, don't talk about yourself, Persuade people with facts and numbers and charts and be as objective and literal-minded as possible. And particularly getting a science education, which I did, and it's one of the reasons why scientists are among the worst communicators. Because we're told, be literal, never be metaphorical. Okay, so Joe, last question now. There's a whole field of narrative psychology. Write your story. If your story's not finished, you can write that next chapter. So Joe Rome... You want to be a hero. I want to be a hero. We both happen to be 58. Let's talk to all the 58-year-olds out there. How can we be a hero if we are not heroes yet? Well, I think given modern lifespans, 58 means you could be working for another quarter century. And if I were doing a branding exercise with someone, which I do, the question I ask is, what's your superpower? What makes you stand out? Why should somebody hire you? Or why should they go on a second date with you? If you go to an interview, why should they give you a callback? 
So we need to develop your understanding of what exactly it is that you think makes you stand out in this particular area. So that's the superpower. And now let's figure out what your hero's journey is. Because everyone starts out the same, little baby, normal person. But at some point, there is this crucible, there is this test, or something terrible happens. That often happens. Look, Bill Clinton's a vegan now. That's what two heart attacks will do. So there's usually some sort of conflict or some sort of event. So everyone has to learn how to tell this story. This is sometimes called the zero to hero story. Because again, when I'm speaking to an audience, I'm speaking as someone who started where they were. I used to be a person who faced their problem and somehow gained wisdom about how to solve it. And this is the hero's journey story that everyone must tell. Why is the hero's journey the most popular story, the one we want to hear again and again? The reason is life doesn't come with an instruction manual. Nobody knows what they're doing. We are making it up as we go along. If you want to be a good parent, there's books that would say, you have to do this and only this. And there are books that say, under no circumstance should you do that. I'm sure if you're a parent, you know. So the point is, there is no instruction manual. We're all trying to figure out why we're here, what our role is. That's what the hero's journey is. It's how other people figured out what their place is, their special talent in the world, their mission, their purpose the struggle they went through to get to that point. Joe Rome, author of really the great new book, How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Well, thank you for having me. And those of you who buy the book, please do review it on Amazon because Amazon reviews are critical to the success of a book these days. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations. Conversations.